I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, host of Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign affairs podcast in America. Today, we're continuing our coverage on the Belarus uprisings, and here to help us break some of the latest developments down is Katerina Schmatzina, a non-resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She's also a research fellow at the Belarusian Institute for Strategic Studies, where she conducts research on Belarus's foreign policy and regional security. So welcome to the show. How, how are you? Um, hi, uh, thank you for having me. Good. So um, how have you been doing, given everything that's happening in your country? So I was uh, pretty busy covering the events on the ground uh, during the presidential campaign and the first days of the post-election pro protest. Uh, and then I realized that I'm having some issues uh, on my personal security. I didn't feel safe related to my work. And I would say like in previous years, usually the political analysts were safe. Uh, usually the uh, authorities, when they would uh, launch repressions against activist politicians, they wouldn't touch the analysts. And, uh, but at this, this time was a little bit different. And I've seen uh, some, let's say, like unpleasant things, including prosecution that happened to some of my colleagues. And I didn't feel safe and I love the country. But I do continue covering the events and uh, contributing my analysis while being abroad. So for a lot of people who don't know, um, do you mind just talking about the work that you do? And because you are, you're, you're a native born in, Be in Belarus. So I know that this is hitting you obviously very personally because this is your home. And so just tell us um, what you do because you've also studied in the United States. Uh, you lived in the United States. So I'm a lawyer by my initial education, uh, which I got in Belarus. And then I worked with uh, political movements, political groups in Belarus, which was not uh, the safest uh, career to choose, uh, in considering the repressive environment uh, Belarusian civil society and political parties have. And uh, uh, essentially, in, in, in past 20 years, we didn't have a new registered part, political party uh, because, well, the government doesn't want to uh, to maintain the political diversity and like the, the plurality of political opinions. Um, and so I did work with some uh, political parties and also with um, essentially the um, movements which act de facto as a political party but are denied registration. And even if they succeed to register, they are registered as a human rights organization or educational organization. Uh, and that's just to, to, to give a little bit of prospect how things look on the ground. Uh, and then talking about my personal experience. So I did uh, start uh, from the very first days of my uh, professional experience straight after law school. I, I started working with the civil society political groups and uh, that was uh, again like not the safest option to do um, in terms of uh, potential you know, like pressure from authorities etc. But I was doing fine and then I uh, went to the US um, to get a, a master's degree uh, at Syracuse University and then I worked at the American Bar Association working with uh, UN agencies and promoting uh, rule of law, democratic governance uh, projects, which American Bar Association has a pro bono practice and they work 
providing uh, technical assistance to uh, United Nations development programs uh, in uh, developing countries. Uh, so I was working on those projects and that was a thrilling experience, including, let's say, organizing conferences at the United Nations headquarters, working with major development agencies uh, uh, in, in developing countries. And then I went back to Belarus, uh, focusing on uh, uh, making sort of a career shift towards uh, foreign policy, towards research, and uh, uh, becoming more of a think tanker rather than a, uh, a person who works on like technical assistance uh, projects. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the past few years and uh, in, uh, in Belarus. Um, and uh, as you've mentioned already, I worked on foreign policy, regional security, but also here I want to say that when we think, when we talk about think tank life in general, I would say it's very different, the environment, uh, given that um, Belarus uh, has quite a restrictive environment on all the civil society initiatives, on the foreign aid um, provision and uh, receiving this foreign aid, uh, think tanks also worked in this non-free environment. And uh, for instance, the think tank, the, the one where I am, like the Belarusian Institute for Strategic Studies, uh, we operate for like over 10 years now, and uh, we are registered in Lithuania in the neighbor country, uh, as, as well as many other uh, organizations do, because that's easier uh, to, let's say, like avoid unwanted attention from the authorities, unwanted pressure. And so essentially, we operate, uh, legally operate from abroad just to feel uh, safer. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much uh, the, the picture I wanted to, uh, to draw. Okay, and so you have a lot of experience with dealing with the Lukashenko uh, um, regime, basically. Did you ever think that your country would be thrust into the global spotlight, particularly with more than 100,000 people hitting the streets on Sunday and the protests lasting as long as they are? Did you ever think that this day would come? Uh, actually, just yesterday, I looked through my previous forecasts I did as an analyst before the elections, and uh, my my forecasts were pretty accurate. Um, I was on, on one uh, side, I was observing this boiling discontent of the people, and I was projecting that there will be some major protests and the crackdown of the uh, of the protesters by the authorities. But at that time, uh, when uh, Belarus was officially sort of uh, the Belarusian MFA and the Belarusian authorities were conducting this politics of um, uh, normalization of relations with the West, trying to look good in the uh, Western uh, perception to enhance ties. Um, it was in their interest to conduct the elections very peacefully, uh, just essentially to, uh, to have this uh, room for maneuvering with the West, uh, because just, uh, let's say, like last year or half a year ago, Belarus and the U.S. agreed to restore diplomatic ties after more than uh, 10 years of freeze. Um, and uh, we were doing pretty well in terms of developing ties with the EU. Uh, and at that time, when I was making these projections about protests, crackdown, and the possibility of crisis, I was... Uh, 
um, saying that because I believe this would happen from like my observations from what was happening uh, during the parliamentary campaign, which happened, uh, which took place a year ago. And at that time, when I was talking to voters and to the candidates running for parliament, um, like that was, you could all, 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 all you could have um, already spotted this uh, scale of discontent uh, in the society. But I was feeling that I'm, uh, I was almost ashamed to, um, uh, to, to speak about these projections because I felt like, okay, this is way too radical scenario. Maybe this is even laughable. This is not going to happen. We didn't have this major uh, protests in, in 10 years. But what is important now to understand about Belarus, uh, yes, it did hit a uh, global spotlight this year, but the discontent around Lukashenko and this um, pushback against authoritarian regime is not new. And in fact, uh, it started at the very first days where Lukashenko came to power back in 1994. Because even then, when he uh, came to power, he started to rewrite the constitution, adding uh, amendments, which allowed him to consolidate the power, um, to consolidate the, like the, the power over all three branches of uh, power, trying to, uh, and, and succeeding to rewrite the constitution in a way that allows him to run indefinitely, to remove two terms. Uh, in, uh, in, in the provisions uh, for, for the presidential uh, elections. And at that time, uh, there were some major um, cases of disappearance of political opponents. And later there appeared evidence that they are no longer alive. And investigation is um, sort of ongoing, but as long as Lukashenko is in power, we won't know the truth. Uh, there were actual um, usage of force against the uh, members of parliament who then opposed Lukashenko to conduct those unconstitutional deeds. And that was the first signal of how the authoritarian regime is going to handle uh, the, those who are discontent. And in that uh, environment where the police started to actually uh, beat the protesters when They've introduced the laws which did not allow people to gather for any unauthorized meeting whatsoever. And this means that if you just show up on the street just by yourself, let's say like uh, it, it could look very uh, normal and natural for, let's say like if you walk, walk in DC uh, around the White House, you would see so many people gathering uh, with uh, posters and protesting this or like another matter. In Belarus, this would never happen because you can stay good, I don't know, like if you want to protest, you can stand on the street for, I don't know, like, few minutes before the police grabs you and they can uh, bring you to the detention center, put on administrative arrest or launch like other repressive mechanisms um, against you. And uh, even in that environment, there were two major protests in 2006, 2010, when hundreds were arrested, beaten uh, after the elections before, because people um, opposed the fraudulent election results where Lukashenko reelected himself, uh, pressuring the electoral commissions to give the right results uh, he wished. And at that times, uh, also the presidential candidates, the major front runners, they were put in prison, faced prosecution, and many had to leave the country after afterwards. So this is not new. And uh, this is something I want to underline when we talk about uh, Belarus. What I think is different now is that it seems that people's um, patience uh, was uh, exhausted because people uh, 
understood like, okay, he's staying in power for 26 years, showing no signs of resigning at any point, anytime soon. And also, uh, I think that the way the authorities intimidated the, uh, the presidential candidates before the comp- uh, during the campaign, before the elections, where the front runners were removed from the campaign, not allowed to register, two, uh, two candidates put in prison, one forced to leave the country. At that time, uh, the authorities uh, obstructed the, um, like created obstacles for, for the alternative candidates to conduct rallies, to sell uh, political campaign merchandise, it all created this already the expectation that there would be some uh, like crackdown or the, it was obvious that the elections won't be fair, of course. And the last drop I think was that uh, these disproportionate usage of force brutality on the first day when people gathered to, um, to express discontent about the results that were announced on the election day, when there were like rubber bullets, of course, people were beaten brutally, and uh, the first few deaths uh, happened during the first days of protest. And I would say that if people were allowed to maybe march on the streets to express their discontent, if the authorities allowed to do so, maybe we won't be observing such a large-scale protest. But what made people join those hundred thousands crowds was the understanding that you do not live in a state where the law governs anymore. In fact, the law enforcement agencies, they uh, are the first one to abuse the law when uh, people were tortured, beaten, raped in the detention centers, and there is no justice you can seek when you try to, uh, to uh, report those violations uh, committed by police. And now the protest is about the, it's, it's about the democratic change and about uh, people's request to be respected. Uh, and uh, people want to live in a just society. So it's not just about, let's say, like better economic conditions. It's not only about Lukashenko resigning, but it's all um, about um, sort of this long story of abusing basic uh, civil and political rights uh, Belarusians cannot tolerate uh, anymore. You talk a lot about regional security. That's one of your areas that you study. What is the Kremlin's play in Belarus right now, uh, especially uh, Putin's relationship with Lukashenko. How does that look at the moment? I think the honest question, oh, like honest answer is, we don't really know. <laughs> and I'll explain why, because on the surface, you can say that, okay, Putin um, and uh, Lukashenko are the long uh, lasting allies and Belarus is, uh, uh, part of this union state, uh, and there's a lot of uh, brotherhood rhetorics coming. Um, but, and you can also see that, like, let's say a few weeks ago, Putin and Lukashenko met in Sochi behind closed doors, and the publicly presented result of the meeting was that uh, Lukashenko received $1.5 billion uh, of aid or some sort of loan. And it looks like uh, Putin supports Lukashenko because, well, they have like long, uh, long uh, history of cooperation, and it is in Russia's interest to have this um, 
uh, authoritarian uh, leader in his orbit and to keep Belarus in its orbit. But um, if we look a little bit um, behind this, um, behind the scenes, it is not that obvious because first of all, it is sort of like wide known and it is leaked by sources uh, close to Kremlin that Putin cannot stand Lukashenko and vice versa. Uh, so the, the picture of brotherhood, friendship, uh, they present publicly, it is not true. It is just like, let's say like pragmatic rationale. Um, for Putin, Lukashenko is becoming an inconvenient uh, partner to deal with. And uh, Putin understands that at one point or another, uh, Lukashenko will leave, uh, be it now or some point in the future. I mean, something can happen, even happen to his health, or let's say like the, the elites could decide to uh, replace him with someone else. And it could be a good um, option for Putin now to maybe support this transfer of power and essentially get rid of Lukashenko on his terms or trying to affect the situation and essentially get rid of uh, Lukashenko. Um, and also when we look at this amount of aid, which was, or like the loan, it's not the aid, the loan amount, which was announced publicly, um, those money are not enough. How much money was it? It was $1.5 billion. Uh, but uh, when we look uh, like what the economist said, that is that this money are not enough to cover our obligations. We all already owe to Russia essentially to repay the loan. It's not enough to sustain Belarusian economy. And at most this would support Belarusian economy for let's say a month or two. Do people suspect that the 1.5 billion was never really intended for Belarus to begin with? Um, no, it was, I mean, first uh, the authorities, uh, the, the ministry, the relevant ministry recently said they don't know when exactly this money would be scheduled. I just want to say that it looks more that first, like this money is not enough like to support Belarusian economy, which is shrinking after COVID in the first place. And then this meeting in Sochi, I think it was uh, more of a political meeting having some repercussions for potential transfer of power in Belarus. Uh, because at that time, the first it was behind the closed doors and then sources close to uh, Kremlin, they uh, leaked the information saying that Putin will talk about uh, Lukashenko, forcing Lukashenko to leave uh, and talking about transfer of power scenarios, not about Lukashenko staying in power. And it looks like uh, this public announcement of some sort of result about uh, money, uh, it was more of a public, um, like something, uh, some deliverable you present to the public in the, uh, um, like after, after the meeting. And also given that right now, European leaders uh, such as Macron and Merkel are paying attention to the situation in Belarus and they are meeting with uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and uh, trying to communicate to Lukashenko their point of view on this post-election crisis, although Lukashenko does not respond and literally does not pick up the phone. Uh, we know that Macron called Putin. Uh, he was talking about potential facilitation in this crisis. So I think that on Russia's side, Russia is calculating the options, how they can uh, capitalize, how can they can seize the opportunity in this situation in Belarus. Because in uh, virtually, like in, in this regard, Russia is or will be a winner and they can capitalize on the situation in virtually any scenario. 
if Lukashenko remains in power, he will be very much dependent on Russia because the, the rest of the world or like the rest of the, like, like the Western world will cut ties with him. And uh, the, the economy is shrinking, especially given that now many companies, Belarusian companies are living the country. They are already relocating elsewhere because they, especially IT companies, they do not feel safe. Uh, and some of them faced repressions. As in, uh, especially those who try to support the political opposition, and uh, the the economy will be uh, shrinking, and that would be, affect uh, Belarusians uh, enormously. And uh, Lukashenko will have to seek some money again, external lending, to support the the economy. And Putin can do so. Like Putin can give continue giving him some money and uh, again uh, supporting uh, the regime in exchange of uh, political trade-offs uh, maybe some sovereignty trade-offs uh, but at the same time if he support if Putin supports some uh, sort of uh, transfer of power change and facilitates the negotiations let's say under the OEC umbrella uh, Putin can uh, present himself as a responsible uh, leader as, uh, and present Russia as a responsible international actor. Uh, also having a say in, let's say, uh, like establishing ties with the new democratic leadership in Belarus and uh, removing, getting rid of Lukashenko uh, and trying to promote his own interests uh, in installing some new uh, maybe political uh, leadership in, in Belarus or getting some guarantees from current democratic leadership. Uh, I mean, the current democratic forces, opposition forces who try to uh, remove Lukashenko and uh, he would get some, he could potentially get some guarantees from them that uh, Russia and Belarus will remain in close uh, strategic and alliance. Uh, and what we know now is that the team of Svetlana Tikhanovska and Coordination Council, they tried to reach out to Kremlin uh, decision makers, trying to present their position, explaining that the new leadership, uh, democratic one, does, if they come to power, they do not pose a threat to Russia and Russia won't lose uh, Belarus. Um, in terms of like geopolitical uh, interests. But what does that mean, though, they will not lose Belarus? Uh, it means that it won't be an explicit pro-Western uh, shift. It means that we are not, uh, let's say like Ukraine, we're not making a shift towards the West and cutting all the ties with Russia. And this is not possible, in fact, given that uh, we, ha we are so deeply currently integrated into Russia-led uh, integration structures, uh, such as Eurasian uh, Integration, uh, Eurasian Economic Union, um, and uh, our company have some benefits of like trading, uh, working with Russian counterparts. So uh, like there is even little uh, sense to do so to cut the uh, economic ties and to sort of build walls uh, because right now we have uh, we don't have borders with Russia. We have free movements of uh, goods and, and persons. Uh, so yeah, like it doesn't make uh, much. Uh, it doesn't make uh, sense. And um, I would say that in current situation, when Belarusian democratic forces are quite weak, in a sense, I mean, on, on one side, they are strong because they, in the sense that they made such a strong progress for past few months of transforming into 
political force which is respected and uh, consider taken seriously by international community. Uh, I mean that, let's say, like Macron and Merkel meeting with Tikhanovskaya, this is a signal that they are taken seriously and also uh, treated like when Tikhanovskaya is uh, treated um, as a high-level political figure by uh, Baltic states leaders and when she is invited to speak at the UN Security Council to give her a uh, perspective on how to solve a uh, situation in Belarus. Uh, and they've built this reputation and team and uh, strategy during just past few months, acting in, in high uncertainty situation, under pressure, under fear of prosecution. So this is a success of the democratic forces. But uh, honestly speaking, they do not control the situation on the ground. And they only can hope to transform it at some point to maybe uh, make the, the people from power vertical to change sides or to get more eventually to sit at the negotiations table with Lukashenko and to come to some sort of solution for the crisis. Um, so... Um, uh, but but I would say like still like the, the democratic uh, forces have made quite a significant uh, progress and they're treated um, seriously. So let's talk about the opposition leaders and I'm going to pronounce their names as best I can. I've practiced a number of times. So the leadership, uh, Maria Kolesnikova, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya and Veronika Stepkala. Those are the three opposition leaders and i pray that i did not butcher their names i've tried so hard yeah it was correct Th thank you <laughs> I, I worked on it so tell me as somebody who has worked with the opposition and you know the opposition inside out did you expect these three women to emerge as the leader of the uprisings no that was totally unexpected and at this elections we've seen totally new faces uh running becoming the front runners of the campaign there were a few candidates although less visible uh from the sort of the old opposition uh structures but this campaign was prominent with new faces uh appearing on the political arena and they were so efficient in um, in, in consolidating the voters' um, support, and they were coming with such a strong message, uh, starting with, um, I don't know, like putting together their uh, portfolios, and uh, they, they have very creative way to communicate to people their messages. And this is very different from what the old um, sort of, all uh, the opposition used to do. Um, they had a creative, they had the support of the uh, business people, they had the support of the creative class, uh, engaging artists, uh, talented PR strategists, and they just made this um, uh, messages communicated much more smarter and efficiently and uh, very engaging compared to what the old opposition did. But again, I don't blame the old opposition because they've uh, worked in such a restrictive environment for years. They were having issues with obtaining financing whatsoever. Um, and uh, it, like, it is understandable that when you have very little resources and you struggle like daily with, I don't know, like the prosecution of your key activists, etc you might not have that much resources to create uh, a campaign. But these people, they just appeared very, um, uh, very brightly. And uh, they come from uh, different backgrounds, let's say, uh, 
the team of uh, Victor Babarika, the banker, he had the support of, let's say, like the, the business and he appealed to the uh, business uh, associations or like the, the voters who, um, who, who come from like, so like, like middle class or like upper middle class. And uh, let's say like blogger Tikhanovsky, he appealed to the people in rural areas uh, because he was traveling across the country trying to um, expose the uh, issues or like to talk about the issues those uh, people uh, experience in their daily lives. And uh, thus he got uh, quite a lot of popular support. Uh, and also former diplomat uh, Tsipkala, he was also a, a founder of the IT um, hub, a high-tech park, and also was like appealing to the IT uh, sector, uh, which was uh, until recently very rapidly uh, developing in Belarus. So those people appeared, uh, maybe like they were having, they did not know much about the restrictions and the problems that the old opposition existed in. And they came uh, prepared and with like fresh ideas and lots of resources and creativity to this political campaign. And they've uh, um, appealed to quite a wide range of, of voters. And also at the time when uh, those uh, major uh, front runners whom I named, Zipkala, Babarika, Tikhanovsky, they were all eliminated from the race when uh, the wife of blogger Tikhanovsky, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, uh, jumped in uh, to run instead uh, because her husband was removed from the race. Um, it was actually the mistake of the authorities, I would say, because they thought that she would be a, uh, clearly she won't get, uh, gain such uh, support. Uh, she, she was not known until, let's say, I don't know, like maybe three or five months from now. Um, and uh, she didn't have any political capital or experience. Uh, but given that all other uh, candidates were removed from the race, like the most promising ones, she consolidated uh, all the electorate. Even if, like, let's say, like the three front runners were registered, they would have uh, split the opposition electorate. One would support, uh, let's say, like the banker; another, the uh, the uh, former diplomat, etc., with their agendas and strategies how to develop the country. Um, but uh, when everyone was removed from the race, and you essentially have only one. Uh, opposition candidate, then people united under this uh, umbrella of Tikhanovskaya team uh, and uh, understood that, okay, like maybe the, the, the only and the key uh, requirement we have is to have new uh, elections without Lukashenko and uh, we would support whoever opposes him. It's also my understanding that sexism played a role in which Lukashenko said that you know, women are not for leadership. I uh, don't have the exact quote, but my understanding is that that offended a lot of people. Yes, of course, this did um, outrage um, women. But I would still argue, like you can read, of course, a lot about the women being courageous agents of change in Belarus and taking the leadership roles. Um, I still don't think that the situation with gender equality is good inside the country. And I still don't think that women would have had this chance uh, to step in if uh, the male frontrunners were out there, if they were registered as candidates. Because our um, 
public opinion polls showed, at least before the elections, that the people rather leaned towards supporting the male candidate rather than the woman. And I don't think that with all things equal, women would have been able to break this uh, glass ceiling. Uh, so I think it's just a good coincidence of events when women seized this chance and had an opportunity to uh, demonstrate what they're capable of, uh, finally. And I think now it has sent uh, a wonderful precedent where, let's say, um, in, in some civil society structures, the opposition democratic forces structures in general, like when those women on the political stage, this women trio, they set an example uh, showing that women can be responsible leaders. And uh, even now when, let's say, the team of Tikhanovskaya is appointing uh, representatives uh, on, on specific uh, domains, let's say like producing uh, solutions for, for the new Belarus, thinking strategically what could be useful for the new set of economic reforms if the protest wanes, or for human rights issues, sports, youth, etc. essentially creating some uh, new uh, strategies, uh, something that the ministry normally would do in the country. When they appoint those representatives, they also, also think about uh, gender balance, uh, about like among those team of representatives. Um, and this is something that have started to be ingrained in people's minds that, okay, it is actually a good idea to think about gender balance. Before, because before this uh, whole like, election turmoil, um, the talks about gender equality, especially women's leadership, it existed on paper, but did not uh, exist in people's minds. I mean, on paper, when you read the recommendations of, let's say, like, uh, international organizations or read some gender equality indexes but it was it just sounded uh, something not important but now when women made this uh, breakthrough in leadership um, people like it, it started to appear in just uh, everyday life and and it started to become normal how challenging is it for a woman in belarus to pursue office so when you look at the Gender equality indexes, which were obviously composed before the situation in Belarus, um, Belarus looks good on the paper in a sense that we had more than 30% women in the parliament, maybe more, um, and uh, in, in other like ministerial positions. But when you know that, uh, let's say, the parliament is rubber step one, stamp one, and um, does not decide much. And, and if you look at the history of how those women uh, got there, it happened after Lukashenko attended some international meeting or something like that. And he said like, okay, we can bring more women into parliament. And again, like given that we don't have any actual elections, you can uh, let so many talking heads into the parliament as much as you want. And, uh, and even, uh, in that regard, when you look at the uh, decision makers at the ministries and the government agencies, um, major positions were taken by men and uh, the lower paid ones uh, essentially taken by women. Women uh, compose most of the social services sector, education, uh, again, like getting stuck in those lower paid positions. Uh, let's say essentially when the head of the um, hospital would be a man and then uh, the medical staff uh, will be women. 
and and that's pretty much like the picture that, that uh, exists in in different uh, sectors. Um, so yeah, like it, it's it was not uh, easy, and and the same thing in the political parties, even the opposition ones, when uh, the head of the party would be a man and then women would do some low paid low uh, uh low prestigious uh, let's say door-to-door -door campaigns and conduct some campaigns uh but uh, not doing some kind of uh, prestigious work you know ironically the campaign the ground game door-to-door -door, at least in america that is some of the toughest work in a campaign, but that's of course, if they're free and fair and if you know, they're, they, they, the work is consequential, um, it's just ironic. But in America, uh, the in the US Congress, 23.7% uh, of the members are women and in our US Senate is 26. Well, actually, let me check that again. Um, in the... 26% serve in the Senate and 23% serve in the U.S. House of Representatives, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. So in Belarus, all things considered, the, the percentage is higher. It's just an interesting statistic. How consequential are our elections, the, the outcome between Donald Trump and Biden for Belarus? I will uh, start with uh, maybe I don't know, like joking that I am biased uh, uh, and uh, I, I really like I would um, support Joe Biden just because he's an alum of the same school where I went, um, Syracuse. But uh, on a more serious note, I think he that, went to Syracuse. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Okay, I, I support Biden because he's not a racist, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, this um, just makes you uh, support the candidate a little bit more. <laughs> of course, uh, like Biden, for instance, voiced already voiced uh, support to the people of Belarus. And I think that he will be more active if he wins. He will be generally more active um, to support uh, U.S. Uh, global role and to restore the uh, U.S. role in the alliances and also to promote, uh, let's say, the liberal international order and its values worldwide. And uh, also particularly support the situation in Eastern Europe and particularly around Belarus. Uh, but I would say, and, and of course, the least favorable outcome would be if Trump remains president. But even the uh, given that there is still a, a system of like checks and balances and the institutions in the U.S. are strong, at least compared to like, let's say, what happening in the authoritarian states like uh, like Belarus, uh, still, uh, despite uh, like Trump is not the only one to decide the foreign policy agenda. And uh, there is still has a lot been made by, let's say, State Department uh, supporting the uh, issues in Belarus, supporting uh, putting together human rights uh, situation reports or the senators um, who also are open to um, to take the Belarus situation in consideration. So even at that time, we get some response on behalf of the U.S. and the talks about sanctions. So um I think we, we still will be uh, 
like sort of enjoying some support from the U.S. Uh, regardless of who wins. But of course, like Biden would be more open to uh, to be more um, more active internationally and support this uh, part of Eastern Europe. I'm interested in your work with opposition. If you feel comfortable, if not, don't worry about it. But can you tell us some of the challenges you personally experience uh, in Belarus working with opposition uh, parties? Because I think our audience would be very interested in that. So the Belarusian opposition parties, they, at least in the, in the past years, um, they did not have an opportunity to get financing from inside the country or maybe uh, most of them, uh, just because Lukashenko did not allow any business or initiative to support these parties. Um, and uh, like he, he would actually like threaten uh, to the businesses saying like, okay, if I know that you support the, the political party, you won't have your business uh, anymore or something like that. And uh, in that environment, those organizations, they majorly, they rely on foreign financing, uh, which exists in, say, in a gray area, you don't necessarily, and of, even if you want to get, I mean, you don't necessarily like pay taxes or can actually conduct a you know, like transfer of money or anything on your bank account, just because you will have troubles. And uh, it also like creates pressure on you don't know like whether you're safe or not and how how long you safe you will be, and also it 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 applies in a similar um, scale uh, to uh, civil society organizations to human rights organizations uh, NGOs when they are having issues with um, conducting uh, with uh, accepting let's say even some foreign grants where if you want to legally obtain this grant, use it in Belarus in your bank account, first, good luck, because you will have lots of, uh, let's say, politically motivated uh, check of your work by various state agencies. But uh, even uh, if you manage to register this grant, you have to be prepared that it will be pending for a long time. And the project you're making, it might lose its relevance when this uh, humanitarian department, uh, like relevant state agencies, would check where this money are coming from. And uh, the decision will be politically motivated. I know uh, from what my colleagues experienced, even uh, if the grant would be uh, allocated to, let's say, women's rights uh, project, women's rights agenda, the government agencies would try to decide whether this uh, organization uh, which wants to obtain the grant, whether they are friendly to the government, are they like uh, promoting something pro-government or they are leaning towards the uh, opposition. And uh, if so, then they, they won't receive the money. Mm. And in that environment, and also the major, let's say, like organizations and like International Republican Institute, uh, National Democratic Institute, or some uh, other funds, organizations, uh, like foreign uh, organizations, they are expelled a long time ago. They were either not allowed to work in Belarus or expelled from Belarus, and they are working for the country, but being abroad. Uh, in various offices like, you know, like Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland, 
And uh, in that environment, it just creates a challenge on the how to operate, how to receive any sort of funding for any project, even like a minor one for, I don't know, like a small scale uh, development project. And uh, that's the environment where the political parties operate as well in terms of uncertainty. And also when they are denied registration, uh, some of them can sort of manage to uh, de facto operate as an NGO uh, but they are denied registration and there is a criminal um, penalty, like criminal responsibility for acting on behalf of unregistered organization. Even though this particular article in the criminal code was not applied for a long time, but it's still out there pending. You don't know whether you're uh, under threat or not. And also in terms of um, obtaining aid, what happened now uh, after the elections uh, even those or NGOs that managed to legally obtain this grants from, uh, I don't know, like foreign embassies, uh, which announced calls for uh, project support or other foundations for development projects in Belarus. I'm not even talking about political stuff here, just like development and NGO work. Uh, they were called uh, to like special um, agencies like I don't know like KGB or something and other uh, state agencies for interrogation and essentially like the goal was to intimidate them to check how they got this funding even though everything was already approved uh, by state agencies uh, before and so it just means that you're not safe when you work with the foreign money uh, and you're exposed, but you cannot get, it's not because you're lazy, right? It's not because you just want to get money from foreigners for free. And then uh, you cannot uh, monetize your work if it's, or like you cannot get any crowdfunding from inside the country. It's because you exist in this environment where you cannot actually get this money from inside the country. And also after the elections, the major crowdfunding initiatives uh, which were efficient and they did collect money for different causes, be it like people uh, supporting people with disabilities or some, uh, I don't know, like environmental projects, printing books, etc. Uh, they also experienced pressure by the state because they were considered as a threat and they were also forced to leave the country. And uh, I would say that be it political initiative or civil initiative, you constantly exist in this uh, state of uncertainty where you have to do your work and you want to do it good, but you also uh, also, also uh, feel an insecure, like would you face prosecution or some intimidation by special services because of the work you're doing and the law is so like sophisticatedly composed in the sense that you never feel secure and it's not created to help you with this uh, project and uh, like financial uh, functioning of your supporting financially your organization, but to create obstacles and to uh, penalize you uh, at, at any time. And the same thing applies to uh, independent media. Uh, in Belarus, where um, there were some media which uh, were not, like not promoting the state agenda, uh, and uh, some of them were denied registration, but they still uh, continue working in Belarus, like Belsat, it's financed by uh, Poland, and uh, well, that's the only like this the TV non-state TV channel we have in Belarus, and it only exists because the foreigners, like in that case Poland, supports us. And they have an office in Warsaw, but the uh, employees and journalists in Belarus were intimidated for, for years. And uh, 
Essentially, they, they've paid hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines for working as a non-accredited journalist, but no one gave them this accreditation. And uh, journalists were detained once in a while, prosecuted, etc., but still continued their work. And recently, uh, all the foreign media uh, journalists were stripped of their accreditation, uh, just recently, maybe like last week, which also means that all other journalists from other media would also be vulnerable and exposed to those fines. They cannot use this press uh, batch anymore. And uh, one major news um, uh, news outlet stood by, which is like the major, one of the major sources of uh, getting independent information dollars. Uh, they were also uh, with like their status of the media was withdrawn from them. So again, like that's the environment where you uh, operate and you don't really know, um, like when you know that the law is written just to serve the interests of uh, the authorities, essentially, uh, you don't know like how safe you are and it doesn't matter what you do, like whether you try to abide by the law, if the court decisions are politi politically motivated, then uh, there's only so much you can do. Have you ever been harassed by the uh, security forces during your work, uh, working with opposition? Uh, no, I didn't because uh, like maybe I was lucky, but also I, at that time I worked with, let's say major international organizations. And the rationale was that the, the special services, they won't intimidate me because they don't want to have troubles with uh, those uh, major like foreign organizations. Uh, and like this affiliation sort of saved me. Uh, I don't think that would be the case right now when everyone is wrecked. I mean, like, you don't need many grounds, uh, many, uh, I don't know, like, affiliations now uh, to, I mean, like, you don't need many uh, grounds to be arrested at the moment. That's why I left the country sort of preemptively, uh, not waiting till I get in trouble, because there were some very worrisome uh, signals and also uh, some uh, worrisome cases where, the uh, analysts, one of uh, the analysts I know well, uh, he was uh, beaten, detained uh, for, for no reason. Uh, and it was looked very much as an intimidation of political analysts who dared to criticize the regime at that time of the uh, first days of protest. Then uh, another, uh, like a, a researcher, a Belarusian researcher who is doing his PhD in George Washington University in DC. He came to Belarus for just summer vacations and uh, the police uh, broke into his house. Uh, they, he was beaten, he was put in KGB uh, prison for a few days and they've been launched a criminal investigation against him. Um, but then he was released. I don't know why. Like, we don't know why he was arrested in the first place because he did not do anything uh, related to protest organization. He was, uh, he just wrote a piece. The only thing that could be sort of uh, attributed, like why this happened, uh, he wrote a piece on uh, protests, um, like studying protests in Armenia and uh, explaining how this uh, revolution in Armenia could be relevant for Belarus. So essentially, like, it looks like he was prosecuted for his um, research activities. And also there is another worrisome case of Vitaly Shklarov. Uh, he's a political uh, consultant. His uh, uh, spouse is a, a U.S. diplomat, and so he also holds, holds this U.S. Um, passport, and uh, he was in Belarus 
for visiting his relatives. He was grabbed on the streets, um, and now he is staying in prison for, for a few months. His lawyer says that he is very scared, um, and he's, um, like, when his lawyer met with him in prison, again, like, he, the, the charges they dropped uh, on him, they were, like, very unclear. It's not like he was involved again in some sort of political activity. It's more just of his affiliation of being political consultant. Uh, consul he was... If I'm not mistaken, he was on the campaign with Obama and also working with some political um, political figures during the campaign, presidential campaign in Russia. So maybe again, like authorities preemptively decided to get rid of him. And so, and there are very worrisome signals about mistreatment of him, like tortures against him uh, in prison, etc. So like in this environment, you just don't feel safe anymore and it's better to take some preemptive steps to protect yourself. As somebody who has lived in America, uh, especially recently, uh, I can assume you've, um, you're aware of our Black Lives Matter movement and also Black Americans' experience with police. As somebody who was born and raised in Belarus uh, and you have your own experiences with police abuse, I'm interested in your thoughts about America and our own uprisings and your observations of that as a Belarusian? Uh, so I was, uh, um, I, I haven't been to the U.S. for uh, for like maybe past year or two, and uh, I did not experience this uh, major uh, movements uh, that happened uh, in the U.S., so I've only saw them in the news. But from my experience, uh, you, you, you still sort of feel more free and safe in the U.S., although, I mean, I do not... Uh, I cannot say that like the, the police would, uh, the, the American police would consider me as uh, um, like, I, I do not fall in this, like, let's say like risk group of uh, police brutality in the US. Um, so definitely you can draw parallels, um, but um, I would compare uh, the situation in Belarus to other clearly like authoritarians like the the i would say that the roots of the uh this police brutality in the u.s have a bit different origin although like of course this uh the the, the brutality and justice cannot be uh like tolerated or or justified um but i would still compare the the police brutality in belarus to similar uh authoritarian uh, non-free uh, states let's say in in Eurasia where uh, the police serves the interests of a very small group of the ruling elite and uh, uh, so mm, they just uh, like oppress anyone who is in the opposition essentially so I would say like the, just a little bit different um, experience. And I, again, like I won't necessarily compare those. What keeps you doing the work that you do, even if it's a risk to your safety? I live and breathe politics. And that's something that I 
I've known about myself since, I don't know, like very early uh, years of my childhood even. Uh, like I've always had this interest for public sphere and maybe uh, like I remember those like history classes and back in school where I was reading about Aristotle or ancient Greece and about those ideals of uh, how to organize the public space uh, for, for the common good and to like to contribute to the public good. Uh, and uh, essentially like when I started to work after law school, I actually started to work in legal consulting and doing more of corporate business law thing. But then very quickly I realized that this is something that does not drive me. Of course, that was a very nice, promising, well-paid career, but it did not uh, drive me. And I made a very quickly, I made a shift towards uh, political field, even though that was not uh, safe and not the best choice maybe in terms of like remuneration. Uh, but then there is something fulfilling. And uh, as long as I remember myself, like during like my uh, professional life, I always work with multiple like civil society initiatives and political parties. And this is something that makes me happy uh, because I, I can see that this work is meaningful, even though it does not bring immediate change. Like we do not live in a democratic society or like my work for the political uh, party, let's say, did not lead to some democratic change, but still I believe that it all accumulates and brings us to better future for my home country. Katerina, I want to thank you for giving me your time today. And I wanted to highlight your work and your perspective because you risk your safety for the betterment of your country. And I really admire people like you who do the good work uh, and I'm happy that my audience has an opportunity to hear from you. So thank you so much. Please be safe. Take care of yourself and support you and everything that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Black Diplomats. We especially want to shout out our patrons. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy.